So, um, listen, and not, before we get into um, the, the, the teaching part of this, I just want to thank you for your willingness to be used by the Lord to feed people. Um, it's a big deal. It, it, it is a big deal. I mean, for me and my family, we are loved on and well cared for by the church. Thank you for our salary and so forth. So we're not in need, but a lot of people in our community are. And when you um, lovingly hand them through the rest of the people in this flock, a big old, you know, a couple of armloads of really good groceries, fresh stuff. Um, it's Jesus in their lives, and you make a big difference. So thank you for doing that. And that's why, so on, on the 8th of December, when we receive that offering, I, I, I don't want to twist your arms. I just want to ask you, just ask the Holy Spirit, hey, God, what do you want me to do? What should I do? And he'll give you something. He'll say, no, take the day off. Not from church, of course. Um, but maybe from the offering, or maybe he'll say, hey, write a $1,000 check. I don't know what he's going to tell you, but, um, but we're going to take every penny that comes in, and we turn it into food and give it to people in need. So um, that's what's going on on December 8th. Anyway, so today's the 24th. Here's our proverb of the day. In a multitude of counselors, there is safety. There is safety. Momentum um, is a uh, property that's um, calculated using mass times velocity. <laughs> Okay, no, that's something different. That's um, okay. Who's who, all right? Who's 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 giving me a hard time back here? I'm going to call on you later. Okay, um, and it's a, it's this force that's carried by something moving, some a mass moving in a particular direction. Okay, and um, our lives, our lives can build momentum and become powerful forces for God. And and sadly, though, momentum can also go in the wrong direction. It can be a negative thing, and, and when it's a negative thing, it can produce, uh, it can produce re regret. It can produce a lot of regret. And the book of Joel comes, it basically comes to the place of answering this question, can momentum be reversed? Can we change direction? There's a very, very common lie um, that without question, many people hearing this today w believe all or a part of this lie. And it goes like this, it's too late for me. It's too late for me. I mean, I've been this way. I've lived like this. I've done this. I've gone the wrong way. I've gone this way too long. I can't change. It can't change. I won't change. It, it, it can't turn around. The title of our message today is, I'm not too far gone. I'm not. I'm not. You're not. It's not too late. It's not, it's not too late for me. It's not too late for you. And it's, it's, it's not too much time, it's not too much error, it's not too much regret, there aren't too many consequences, there, there's not already too many bad decisions, because basically, to, to, to come to a blunt point, if you're not dead, God's not done with you yet. Okay, now the context, uh, we're going to get into the book of Joel, before we do that, let's, let's pray. Lord, as we get into your word, we pray, Lord, for your spirit to massage light and life into our souls and to train us to hear truth, but also, God, to discern and discriminate from static and chaff. Let that stuff just float away. In Jesus' name, amen? Okay. So uh, uh, the book of Joel, Joel is, is one of the books in the Bible that are called a minor prophet, not because they're less important, but because they're short. It's just a short book. Um, it's, you, can, you can read it over a cup of coffee. Joel's name actually means um, Jehovah, Joel, L is a word for God. This book was written in the late um, 700s BC, almost 800 BC, and, and the occasion of the book, what was going on, was there was a locust plague, um, and the prophet is, is, is bringing a warning or an explanation to the people, 
And because there was a, there, because there was, there was this locust plague, and God is giving his people a warning. Now, locusts are one of the most devastating and dangerous pests that are really known to mankind. They eat more than their weight um, every day. They migrate when there's not enough food in large groups, and uh, then they can swarm across the landscape. Here's one account. I'm going to read this to you. Late one July morning in 1874, 12-year-old farm girl Lily Marks, which uh, um, watched the sunlight dim and particular darkness sweep over the Kansas sky. Could you lower that? Thank you. A whirring, rasping sound followed, and there appeared a moving gray-green screen between the sun and the earth. Then something dropped from the cloud like hail, hitting her family's home, house, trees, and a picket fence. <laughs> um, it's estimated that um, when that happened in 1874, 120 billion, that's the Carl Sagan, billion, um, cut the swath of destruction that started in the eastern part of British Columbia and went down across Montana and, and Nevada and Idaho and Wyoming and the Dakotas. And it, it stretched all the way down to, um, to nearly to Texas, and it was a swath over 100 miles wide. And, um, you know, you might be saying to your question, well, how did you... I'm sorry, sorry for the quality of that video. They didn't have 4K back in 1874. Um, <laughs> These videos are from um, 2015 in, an, in, in a similar swarm that was in um, southern Russia in which uh, 1.9 million acres were gobbled up. This is just a few years ago, gobbled up in, uh, in that area. That's um, 3,000 square miles. That's just an unable. These, these kind of pestilences still happen today. And um, God sent a devastating infestation of locusts into the land of Israel where his people were living. And it wasn't like today. They couldn't, you know, hop in the car and drive to Costco and Winco and Fred Meyer and just stock up. There were no grocery stores. These people planted their food. They worked it. They tilled it. They pulled out weeds. They harvested it. And that provided for them food for their families. That's what they lived on. And um, if the locusts came, they'd cut down everything. They, they would chew up everything in their path. They would get inside the houses. They would get inside the cupboards. They would chew the wood. They would just, um, it, was, it, was, it was total destruction. I mean, Lisa and I just built a house in the woods. before there was, It was trees there before we built it. Now we've moved in, and we get crickets. They're in the house somehow, and I, 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 Lisa hates them. She chases them with a vacuum. <laughs> She's good. She's, you know, anyway, so... Um, but they lived there before we did. But this is not that. This is, you saw, this, 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 this wall. And um, so uh, we're going to be in the book of Joel now. If you brought your Bible, I which I hope you did, it's, it's kind of to the right of the center of your Bible in the Old Testament, um, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, Hosea, then Joel. It's really short. Um, we're going to go right into it, Joel chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, Hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Have you ever seen anything like this before? This is beyond natural. This is supernatural. Verse 3, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Keep passing the word. What the cutting locust left. Okay, this word cutting locusts is the exact same word that describes locusts in Deuteronomy 28. <coughs> Deuteronomy 28 is a terrible chapter in the book of God. <laughs> Bad stuff being described there, and it's the same, same word. What the cutting locust um, 
left, the swarming locusts had eaten. What the swarming locusts left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. This was God's judgment upon his people because of their complacency. They had all of the goodness of God. They had, they had the kindness of the Lord. They had all these blessings for God. But they had grown indifferent to the kindness of God. And uh, it didn't, it, it, the, the kindness of God no longer took them and shake them. It, it, it no longer moved them as it once did. So God basically concluded, I'm, I'm not going to have my people with a, whole, a, you know, a terrible cold heart toward me. Locusts, go. You're released. And God was creating in his people a desperation to cause them to return to him. This was in my mind when our worship leader was saying, my father spanked me. And this is pretty extreme. And things had become very, very extreme. And I hadn't planned to make this today a Thanksgiving message. Um, by the way, Thanksgiving is coming up this week, which I think is a terrific holiday in our culture. It's one of the most godly holidays, not because of the way we exercise it, but because of what we could do with it. Um, but I see that the Holy Spirit's winding a tapestry this morning. And, and a, a friend of mine, Dan, mentioned something to me today. He said, hey, what are you preaching about Sunday? And I told him a little bit. And he said, well, Thanksgiving gratitude is a real stronghold smasher. And Dan, thank you for that. <laughs> way to go, Dan. You made the sermon, man. Okay, so uh, <laughs> it's good to make it in a good way, isn't it? Um, but it's a good, it, it, it's so true, and, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail today because um, that's just not where I plan to go, but that is, it, Thanksgiving is coming, and it's important that we cultivate, we cultivate in our souls an attitude with gratitude, and I'm not talking about where you say thank you and you write a thank you card. I'm talking about where you allow it to become welded into your fabric, it's who you are, because I'll tell you, if you are grateful, if you, if you become grateful for things in your life, the challenges that come along, take the proper scale, and your faith will carry you better. But here's where we're going to go today. We, to, to, to mine out of this text um, properly what's the gold that's in there, it requires us to tag along with Joel all the way down to the destruction that he describes there. And so we're going to get some good news. But first, we're going to go pretty deeply down into the bad news. And um, our journey with these people that, that Joel is dealing with through their bad news will help us to see and help us to observe patterns in these people. And then we can see whether those patterns happen to be present or might potentially become present at some point in our lives. And, you know, it would be really easy for me to plot um, this downward spiral by um, going through every verse by verse, but I don't want to do that. Instead, I'm, I'm going to point out, I'm going to skim through a few, few things to kind of get us there as quickly as I can. Um, and here's a few places where you can do this. If you, like, if you ever brought your Bible and you'd like to mark it up, here's some things that you'll notice. Verse 4, destroying locusts. Verse 10, the fields are destroyed, the grain is destroyed. Verse 12, the vine dries up, all the trees of the, uh, all, all the, trees of the field are dried up, gladness dries up. And that's actually the very first step down on the way to destruction. One, the capacity to change course dries up. God wants to get their attention about their complacency. And as they look at the devastation um, left by the locusts, they, they see things that are starting to dry up. Can you picture this? You know, Where there had been a field of corn, now there were these broken off stalks that had nothing on them, and the sun's beating down. You know, where there had been fields of grain, now they're just, the seed is eaten. 
and it's just this dirt baking in the hot Middle Eastern sun, everything that was promising um, sustenance for their future had dried up. And it kind of seems like about human behavior that the further we go in a direction, the less likely that we'll return from that direction. Think about that for a minute. The further we go, the less likely that we're ever going to return. Have you ever seen this? The longer that I'm selfish, the more likely that I'm going to keep being selfish. The longer that I'm stubborn, you know, the more likely I'm going to stay stubborn. Um, the, the longer I'm prideful, the longer I'm materialistic, the longer I'm in rebellion, the, long, the longer that I stay foolishly independent, the, the longer I'm self-sufficient, the longer I'm prayerless, the more likely I'll stay that way. And the capacity they see to change here is, 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 is drying up. The resources of life that, that, that brings change, it's, it's, it's leaving me. Probably one of the most disturbing things, you know, for a guy like me about preparing a message like this is that um, those people who need this the most will have the hardest time hearing this message. And people who are in a much better place will be really eager to seize any ground that maybe they've, they've lost. And somewhere in between those two conditions, opportunity is drying up. And it becomes clear that this, uh, this passage is both literal and a metaphor um, um, for their hearts. Verse 12, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate, the plant, palm, the apple, and all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up. This isn't so much about trees. It's about hearts. It, it's not about agriculture and grasshoppers and fields. It's about the field of my soul and the neglect that I've allowed. Lisa and I um, bought um, an ornamental maple tree. I like ornamental maple trees. And we bought one. Um, I was probably impatient, maybe a little impetuous. We bought a couple of pines and, a, and I wanted to put them on our property. You know, we bought some property we built and we're kind of still doing that. And uh, we needed a tree in a spot. And I wanted a tree and I wanted it now. So we went to Moon Garden and got a really, really nice ornamental maple. And um, they said, listen, it's July, um, you're going to have to take care of this and um, water it well at least twice a week, all the way from now until October, and then do it again next summer, because it's not very close to our house, there's no hoses or anything there. I got to get some five-gallon buckets and tote them over there and drench it, and it's a little bit of work, and I, I've been pretty faithful about it, but there was a bit of time I let it go for 10 days in a row, and they weren't just 10 rainy days, they were 10 hot days. And um, when I realized I'd been negligent, this is just last summer, <laughs> it was an expensive tree. And um, I, when I realized it, all of the little beautiful red maple leaves no longer were doing this. They were doing this. <laughs> and not the this kind of like where you could move them. It like, like if you touch them, they went <laughs> into dust, right? Um, <laughs> and... Um, Here's the thing. Some of the branches, some of them still you could move. Some of them, if you touch them, they would go snap. That's not a good sign, right? Okay. Um, but the ones, there were still some that if you moved them a little bit, they kind of went, they would still bend a little bit. And, um, you know, so don't plan their funeral just yet. But if they all go snap, that's just not a good day, um, not a very bright future. What, um, what's been drying up in your spiritual life? Does the worship of God still move you? Does the word of God still grip you? Think of the time in your life when 
when the word of God really gripped you and had your full undivided attention and, and you would immediately accommodate whatever it was prescribing in the moment. Where's your heart in, in, in regard to that high watermark? Is the word of God, is the work of God, the things he's doing in the world, is that still capturing your heart? Or are you looking for ways to, to serve and to be used by the king? Are you, are you, or are you, are you spreading your energies on people that you don't know, that, that are not personal to you? Or do you only really serve people that you already know because of somehow it helps you? From Joel, we, we see something, and I'm going to give you a 30,000-foot flyover, and we'll go back down. God will never give up on the, his people, Israel, no matter how far they wander. And if you are his people, he will never give up on you either. I love that. So um, I, I think we need to let the word of God be a mirror because we're moving now towards the second way down to destruction. Um, later in the chapter, we're going to see this word two times devoured, once in chapter 19 and once in 20, verse 19. So you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the, pa devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Way down number one, the capacity to change course begins to dry up, and this, which should concern all of us. And then two, the opportunity to change course actually begins to be devoured. God is, I think, nudging us this weekend with an incredible opportunity. If you choose to seize this opportunity with your full heart, the opportunity that we're going to talk about today, if you really go for it, you'll be a different person by next weekend. I didn't say you'll be perfect. You'll just be growing like the rest of us, but you'll be different. But opportunities for this are becoming fewer and fewer. And if you're thinking, well, I've always just been the person who hangs out around the edge. I've always just been the person who just kind of checked the box you know, just look the part. What, what is it about human nature? We, we said, the further we go in any direction, the less likely that we'll ever return. Or, or maybe put into even stronger terms, the longer our rebellion lasts, the harder it is to get back. So God lovingly and tenderheartedly makes, you know, brings this journey to us because fire devours the opportunity. Um, Chapter 2, verse 5, fire gets into this picture describing the locusts. As with the rumbling of chariots, which was a big deal. They didn't grow up like you and I did, hearing cars and trucks and semis and the sounds of trains. Remember, they grew up in a world where there were no mechanical sounds. So the rumbling of a chariot was a uniquely loud and, you know, it was a big deal. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, fire devours, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Lisa and I are um, regular visitors to um, Yellowstone and Teton Park. We like to go to Teton Park every summer because it's got wonderful views and lots of animals, and we go find the animals and do that. We do our thing. And um, we've been going long enough now, 35, 36, 37 years, uh, almost every year, not every year, but um, that we've been there during a lot of the big fires, and uh, you probably, maybe you remember, there was this huge fire that took off in Yellowstone in 1988. And they decided, well, the best thing for it is to let it burn. They could have put it out, but it really got out of hand. And um, that thing um, ended up burning, I, what do I have? My notes, 794,000 acres. That's three, th th oh, about 3,200 square kilometers 
36% of the entire park. It was such a terrible conflagration that they actually shut the park down for a while. They couldn't keep safety for the people. Um, and eventually it was put out by the fall rains. We've been at Teton Park when they shut down large sections because there was fires. And, you know, it just, it just goes. We have a moist environment here, but we've had fires in our neighborhood in the last couple of years, right? They just get out of hand. Imagine it in an area that's already dry. Okay, I'm mustering up my courage now. Late last night when we were all in bed, Mrs. O'Leary let, left the lantern in the shed. Well, the cow kicked it over, and this is what they said. There'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. <laughs> okay, that's <laughs> that has nothing to do with God, but it has to do with this great fire. in the, It's called the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. It just took off. Um, by the way, the city of Chicago um, city council exonerated Mrs. O'Leary and her cow. A couple of, or 10 or 10. Anyway, that fire took off. 300 people died. 100,000 people were made homeless by that fire. And 17,500 buildings were just raised. They were just gone. At that time, sidewalks were made out of wood. Streets were made out of wood. Buildings were made. I mean, it, just, it just took off. When a farmer looks out in his field and he sees fire in the field. He knows that his seed is gone too. His capacity to grow resources from what remains actually gets devoured. So when the Holy Spirit is bringing this imagery of fire, he's, he's talking about a day that's so terrible. It's not that you couldn't get back. It's that you won't want to get back. Okay, keep going. And then number three, the awareness of need for change is lost. And here's why that happens so easily. The ability to see clearly and recognize the damage that my sin does to my soul is not hardwired in us human beings. Okay, I need to do that again. The ability to see and recognize the damage that my sin does to my soul is not come with me out of the womb. Okay, um, I mean, some sort of external energy has to enter the system for that to happen. And um, there, there are lots of places I could take you. This is a giant rabbit trail. We're not going to go there, but I'll give you a quick list for your notes. Romans 7, um, Luke 15, which is the prodigal son, where it says that he came to his mind. Um, Psalm 119, Isaiah 55, Isaiah 64. I stopped making the list. There's, there, it's all over. We don't have it naturally. And eventually, a sinful person, the self-focused, the selfish person, which we all can be in that club from time to time. Eventually, we get to a place where, you know, I mean, I just don't, I don't see what's wrong with me. I don't see what's wrong with that. I don't see what's wrong with this. And as the change of heart dries up and the opportunity to change course is burned, the awareness to see the need to change gets lost in this fog of darkness. Notice in chapter 2, verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. And then verse 10, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. These are all metaphors drawing these parallels between the created order, God's wonderful created order, and human life. And he's describing this condition of our hearts, pride and rebellion and words of anger. And the opportunity to change is actually being devoured by the fire until I get to a position where I can't see it clearly anymore. 
Now, I'm going to give you some help. This, here's some help. You may know you're declining in darkness when. Okay, short list. Ready? Here we go. You may know you're declining when one. Sin is obvious and I'm unconcerned. Nobody's perfect. You want to grade on the curve now. You know, I'm not as bad as, you know, as Dan. I'm, I'm not as bad as Bill or Sue or Lisa. <laughs> this step has measure to it. It's, it's slipping. It's measurable. It's, it's getting worse. And, and I'm not really standing still. You know, it's getting worse. I tell myself, okay, but I'm really, actually, I'm not. I'm going backwards. I'm not where I once was. Somehow I've allowed sin to camp out in my life, and uh, I'm in a pattern of decline. Okay, second step. Next step starts to get scary. Stubbornness grows, but I stop caring about it. So it's not just you're not concerned, but you're, you're not concerned about being not concerned. I'm kind of set, you know. I let God forgive me for this. I let him change me in that, and I let him do this in my life. I don't think this is ever going to get done um, because I'm just not that kind of guy. I'm just not going to ever study the Bible. I'm just not going to share my faith. I'm just not going to serve the Lord. I, I'm, I'm doing what I'm going to do, and um, it's really not going to get much different for me. Stubbornness grows, but I stop caring about it. Three, because that's not the bottom. The next one is really, really common. Seclusion. Seclusion. Getting alone is what the person resisting God needs the least but wants the most. Man, why do they keep calling me? No, 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 we're not going to go there um, because somebody will say something to me. I, I'm, no, I'm not in a small group. No, I'm not in this. I'm not going to be in that anymore. That would put me in a conversation that I just don't want. Seclusion. And then here's the bottom. Shame is absent. I don't even feel badly about this. Jeremiah asked, were they ashamed? No. They were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. It, it looks like this. So now you know. You don't have any areas like this in your life, huh? So sin is obvious, stubbornness grows, seclusion, shame is absent. This is really, really common. And we're all likely in different areas in our, in, 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 in our areas of our life. The church, I've heard it described, the church, the body of Christ, is both a hospital and a barracks. You know? And probably, probably, probably most of us in this room don't need to be in the ICU, you know? In fact, most of us here are actually healthy enough that we don't really even need to live in the hospital. If you're healthy enough, not perfect enough, but if you're healthy enough to conduct life and grow, even while you're healing, then it's time to move out of the hospital wing and into the barracks wing of the church. Now, by the way, the church only has two wings, a hospital and a barracks. There is no observation gallery, <laughs> right? It's not like where you go on the tour and you look down and you see where they are making the peanut butter. This is you either... And some of you can probably, some of you can probably draw um, to mind right now somebody who's not at church this weekend and they haven't been for a long time and it's not because they've found another good, healthy church and they're going and they're growing. They're just not going to church at all anymore. And the Holy Spirit's talking to you and you just need to make your mind up right now that you're going to break your own pattern of self-protection and go meet with that person and um, take that list that you just wrote down and say, you know what, I love you enough to have a cup of coffee with you and 
challenge you to make a decision to make your life different while you still can. Now, warning. When you approach a person near the bottom of that list, get ready for a backlash. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what that proverb, Proverb 27, 6, actually means. It means I'm willing to take the pain and the whipping that you might inflict upon me because I love you enough to help you get past this. I'll never forget, this is in my notes, I wasn't planning to tell this, but I started, mom, plug your ears, please. Um, <coughs> she knows this. When I was in high school as a senior, and I was pretty cocky, and I thought I had the life wired, and I started, you know, I had moved on from, you know, the beer parties and the drinking and so forth, and now I was smoking a little bit of pot, which was, was a pretty big deal in the early 70s, um, at least I thought it was. Um, anyway, and I had a couple of my friends pull me aside. You need to stop that, Terry. This was not a very cool thing to do in high school, by the way, to tell somebody, hey, stop smoking pot. They pulled me aside alone. And they said, stop it. We don't like who the person is becoming. We don't like who you're becoming, Terry. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I, I, to this day, I look back at that moment, and I'm grateful. I'm grateful. I needed that. I needed to be spanked by my mom, my dad, and all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't end it. Okay, so um, <laughs> anyway, so then, okay, then this. The inclination, back on our main course, the inclination to change course is gone. Probably the darkest word in all of this text is the word desolation. It's, it's, it's really prominent in chapter 2, verse 3. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Des desolate, the word desolate means no life. It means no source of life. The surface of the moon is a, is a, is a good description of desolate. And the human soul can become just like that, this desolate wilderness. I grew up um, as a Christian. One of the first artists that I used to listen to was a guy named Keith Green. Oh, Lord, you're beautiful. Um, there is a Redeemer, which was written actually by his wife, Melody. And um, another song called Love Broke Through, Created Me a Clean Heart. You probably, come on, I know you many of you know these. And um, he sang something called the Easter Song, which was not written by him. It was written by Annie Herring, part of the second chapter of Acts. Anyway, he was a very prolific, gifted um, artist and... Um, um, I asked Steve to sing um, a little chorus called My Eyes Are Dry. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be alive in you and dead to me. What can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit of love. Wash me new in the wine of your blood.
apologize. I just realized I put the my right in between. Didn't mean to do that. Sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Um, you know, Keith Green was 28 when he died tra tragically. You know, it was really suddenly in a, an airplane. And uh, but he wrote that song in his early 20s, and it was inspired by something you prayed over this this morning, but it was inspired by Ezekiel 36, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The writer of Hebrews said this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that, that will consume the adversaries. Hosea said, break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. And the writer of Hebrews quoted David, saying, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, I'm ready for some good news. <laughs> okay, you guys ready for some good news? I'm ready for good news. Joel tells us also the way back to God starting in verse 12. And I just can't get, can't get over how this starts. It stopped me in my studies. I got stuck for a long time right here. It really moves me. Verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord. What? I can be like this. I can act like this. I can do like this. I can live like this. He must be so angry with me. <laughs> he loves you. He loves you. Loves you, loves you, wants you. He's been waiting for you. Yet, even now, I don't want to ever get over that. I don't want to ever get over that. Yet, even now, when, when, when you've run so far, when you've rebelled so long, when you've refused so vehemently, saying under your breath, it'll be a cold day in hell before. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. This with all your heart, there, it means nothing else matters. I'm not thinking about my kids. I'm not, they're important. I'm not thinking about my kids. I'm not thinking about my career. I'm thinking about one thing, and that's this. I'm going to be as right with God I'm going to be as close to God. I'm going to be as deep into my walk with the Lord as I have ever been in my entire life. And nothing is going to get between me and in the way of that. I haven't hit my high water mark spiritually. And I'm not going to go to the grave with these struggles. I'm going further and deeper with Christ. But you might wonder, well, okay, it sounds really good. I see the passion. How do I do it? I will return intensely. I will return intensely. That's with all your heart, it means. And you can't phone this in. You can't half measure this. You, you can't even get this accomplished in doing a weekly Bible study. Joel tells us how to return to God with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, and mourning. How am I going to know when I'm doing that, that fasting, weeping, and mourning? Well, fasting, weeping, and mourning, that, that, that doesn't sound like such a good week to me. But that's our problem, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we only want the dessert. We don't want the main course. We, we only want the result. We don't want to have to do what we have to do to get there. Fasting, simply put, is, is abstaining from food for measured periods of time to heighten my hunger for God. 
You know, if you're, if you're currently dissatisfied with your spiritual state, have you ever even fasted? You know, we fill ourselves up with fun and with food and with play, and then we go to, you know, we drift off to sleep in a pleasure coma. <laughs> and then we wonder why we can't get up early in the morning and spend time with the king. A.W. Tozer said, we have been caught up in the spurious logic of believing that having found him, we need no longer seek him. Smart guy. He also said, there will be no manifestation of God to his people that is not preceded by intense longing. So fasting, weeping, you know, which is the tears of tenderness towards the spirit's voice and mourning, which is godly sorrow. It's hard work. Especially because our appetite for God has been conditioned by 30-second commercials, 40-word tweets, and drive-through everything. How long is this going to take? Because I'm kind of a busy guy, Terry. <laughs> but if we keep doing what we've always done, we're only going to get what we've always gotten. So Joel continues, chapter, verse 13, and rend your hearts and not your garments. This is, Jesus actually quoted this. In the Old Testament times, um, they would take a piece of burlap or, or what they called sackcloth, which was a symbol of discomfort. It was this rejection of externals, pretty radical one. And when they were st struck by grief, they would tear their garments. Now, it sounds to me like they would buy a special outfit that they could pre-tear or that they would tear so that they didn't tear their good clothes because they knew they were going to be putting on, I don't know. Um, and and, and um, they, the, it got to the place where they were offering God this symbol, not the reality. You know, on the outside, look, I'm, 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 I'm so upset that I tear my clothes, but, but they were only offering God the appearance. But then there's this call to love by God. Return to the Lord your God. Okay, what will he be like if I do this? For he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So not only I return immediately, but God will remove whatever has been holding you down. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner from you. These are the invaders. These are the ones who were, were bringing God's judgment. Imagine how hard this was for these people. They were being persecuted by, and polluted by the presence of these, these things. God says, he's, he's, I will drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. As long as these invaders were around, things couldn't change. So... When we return to the Lord, he cuts the anchor that has held us down for so long. So what's the anchor in your life? Maybe it's a pattern of speech. Maybe it's some sort of addictive crutch. Maybe it's a toxic relationship. Maybe it's a group of friends that aren't really for you. Maybe it's a place you can't go anymore. What has held you down for so long? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. I will remove. Wow. Verse 21, fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Be glad, O children. Verse 23, be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice. There it is again. In the Lord your God. Rejoicing is the verbal form of joy. Okay? It's, it's, if joy is in your heart, it's going it's to be as natural to express it as exhaling is. It's, it's going to be, if it's inside, it's coming out. It's on my face. It's in my words. And, you know, that all sounds great, Terry. Why aren't people running to this? Why aren't they chasing this down? 
It's because we believe the lie that we're too far gone. And we look at people around us that we see as more spiritual than us, and they maybe have it all together in our own minds, and we think to ourselves, oh, they're different than me. I've been this way way too long. And the regret really comes down to an issue of time. Time. There's not enough time left for me to be a different person. There's not enough. It's, I've always been this person, and there's just not enough time left for me to be different. So what we get next is one of, I think, of the greatest passages in the entire Bible. Verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. <laughs> I wanted you to return to me. I sent these things so that you would, and now you have. And I will make it as though they never came. That, that is a shocking promise. It's a shocking promise. And we stand sometime in the midst of the consequences of the things that we wish we could do differently. Yet here's God saying, you know the right, but you chose the wrong. But if you return to me, I'll make it like you didn't waste those years at all. This is shocking. God can make it like those years never happened. Please, 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 let this get past your intellectual net and get welded into your soul. It's, this, is a, this, is, this is something that God wants to tell you and to place into you. This is one of the most remarkable promises in the Bible because it speaks directly to the issues of why we stay where we are. We stay where we are because we feel like, I can't change. I've always been this. I'm like this. My dad was like this. This is what we do. <laughs> but God says, it's okay. It's time to come home. I can give you back the years that the locusts ate. God is a good God. <laughs> he's not a bad God. He loves you. He's longing for you. He's waiting for you. He's open to you today. He's not standing over you with kind of a furrowed brow saying, hey, where have you been? He loves you. And he's saying, return to me with all your heart. And the thing is that God goes beyond forgiveness to make our lives as though we'd never run away. Let's pray.